You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to New Models. Today, January 21st, 2023, marks the launch of the second issue of Paradigm Trilogy, a digital-first magazine from creative director Katarina Corbune. Paradigm Trilogy's inaugural issue in September of 2021 focused on New York City, taking the theme avant-garde and kitsch as its title. And after we stumbled across it, we invited Kat on the podcast to talk about her new media project. For this second issue, Paradigm is focusing on Berlin with the theme Man vs. Machine and features many people within the New Models expanded universe. Hamzat Rahim created the cover, a sculpture of model Paloma Elsesser. Tobias Spichtig shot a fashion editorial in Berlin's Tiergarten with some very familiar faces. Schumann Bassar, Matt Dryhurst, and other notable web surfers shared snapshots of their open browser tabs. And Jack Ritger and Loretta Fahrenholtz contributed excerpts from an in-progress project that draws parallels between contemporary machine learning image generation and the early to mid 20th century interest in the unconscious. For Paradigm, Jack and Loretta used archival images from Elsa Schiaparelli's collaboration with Salvador Dali as a dataset. You can access the new issue, which also features a soundtrack by Alexander Dexter Jones, on your mobile device via ParadigmTrilogy.com. But first, Kat returns, joining us to discuss the ideas that compelled the issue's creation, and the significant shifts in fashion, as well as everything else, since we last spoke. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Kat Corbune of Paradigm Trilogy. Let's get into it. So welcome to the New Models podcast. We are speaking today with Katarina Corbune, or Kat, who is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Paradigm Trilogy. We are speaking to Kat today because this issue intersects new models in several ways. One, it focuses uh, on a scene in Berlin that we feel close to. And secondly, it is thinking about this man versus machine issue. In fact, that's the theme. So Kat, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, Carly. Hello, internet. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Paradigm Trilogy is a publication I started in 2021 I'm a creative director myself in fashion and I work for other publications, for example, System Magazine. And what I was seeing is that there is no publication talking about our creative process as a community. So it was a desire of mine to do something that hits right at the core of what we as an industry should be thinking about and are facing currently. Every issue is digital only for now, but there is always an object connected to the issue that's physical. For the first issue, it was matches because I wanted to have something lowbrow, very ephemeral. And for the second issue, I'm very excited. I met Hamzat Rahim, an amazing artist, creating these sort of like death masks. And so he created a sculpture for our cover of Paloma Elsesser's face. Paloma Elsesser is a big model. And the physical issue will be 50 editions of this sculpture as a mini sculpture. 
um, with a chip inside so that by a hover over your phone opens the digital issue. Once they're all published, I will print a monograph with all three of them. So just for a little more background, because anyone who listens to New Models know that we're always thinking about this implosion of linear media and the end of what we've collectively called legacy media and how it's kind of our generation's cross to bear or whatever to figure out how to bring the energy and spirit of the community that those magazines generated into another kind of form of circulation. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the community that you feel Paradigm comes out of? I mean, if you look at your masthead, it is people who all have professional practices. Um, Paradigm is about a visceral urge. It's almost like when you enter a room and no one says the obvious. We're trying to state the obvious, but I've been really humbled by the support of people within the industry that would just jump on board for free because obviously we're not monetizing this publication. What's the, to use the German term, what's like the Stimmung of the fashion industry right now? Like, what's the vibe? I mean, I was also going to ask, so much has changed, it feels like, between the release of the first issue of Paradigm Trilogy And the second issue. I mean, I wonder if creating it also was a process of reacting in real time. Yeah. When I was writing this issue, it became brutally clear that we were in a completely different state of mind. When the first one was almost still like forcefully alerting the industry to change something, this one has already like given up and moved into a space of like faith. Uh, I feel like if I'm talking about where the fashion industry is right now, it seems very disoriented. We're looking at outdated formulas. When I was like last issue, we lamented about like the death of collaboration. I think we're nowhere at the end of seeing more uh, grotesque collaborations because big luxury is completely lost. Yayo Kusama robot. And I, so I think uh, we're going to see more of the same. And then also tying into that, the component of like forceful political correctness a.k.a. Balenciaga Gate, which obviously you can have an opinion on, but I think everything we're going to see from big luxury is going to be politically correct, entirely uh, nebulous and boring and prude and not going to push the needle forward. What's interesting about that is that it gave way to brands such as Praying, you know, which started as a joke. Uh, For those of you that don't know it, it's like a brand that makes T-shirts that have been called out as blasphemic because they include Christian alluding quotes. So there's like a bikini that says Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit is on the bottom of the bikini. They did a collaboration with Adidas that was canceled because it was called out as blasphemic. So basically the mediocrity of big luxury gives way to the weirdness that can grow in smaller brands that don't have the burden of having to be an institution. So would you say that Paradigm is creating a bit of media context for these smaller brands and this like non-mainstream energy? Yeah, I think the easiest way to say it is like Paradigm is not niche, it's about niche. Yeah. 
Well, I have more fashion world questions, but I think we should dive into this issue. The title is Man Versus Machine. Interestingly, to loop back to the piece with Jack Ricker and Loretta Fahrenholtz, you're talking about what is the process of using generative adversarial networks and machine learning form of creation. What does that mean for the artist? But that piece harkens back to a collaboration between Elsa Schiaparelli and Dolly from the 1930s and 40s a time when there was likewise a consideration of man versus machine. I mean, and particularly in that time, the shock and awe of industrial war machines and the residue of Dada. And, you know, so this question, man versus machine, it's not a new one. Although perhaps because of a lot of new technological advances that have happened in the past couple of years, it certainly is at our forefront. So just to start, maybe you can say your particular reasons for choosing that theme or how you might animate that. Yeah. I think, as you just explained, these are not new questions. What I am focusing on in Paradigm is connecting how technology has always mirrored nature. I talked to Hamzad about how the stone is almost like the first analog hard drive. The entire issue is looking to show that there is no opposition between man versus machine, Mm -hmm. that actually it doesn't have to be a future without technology and a regression into being Amish. (laughs) Right. I mean, it won't be. Human nature won't allow it to be. I mean, as soon as you can extend the hand with a stick, you have technology, right? As soon as you have a tool, you have technology. I mean, some would say it's what makes us human is use of technology. And relatedly, you have a great point. It's kind of near the end of the issue where you're saying that our version to the machine stems not from our fear of machines, but from the human input that makes the machine possible in the first place. That the problem isn't that the machine is inhuman, but that it's capable of amplifying human desires and prejudices without any actual humans being held responsible. So sort of the fiction of it being separate from human. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I was trying to focus on in this issue, I, I stopped reading a lot of cultural writing. I also realized that a lot of it was leading me down the wrong path. What I mean by that is if we think about the machine, it is very closely connected to the human brain. But I became increasingly aware that maybe the problems we're facing as a society can't be solved with the mind. I feel like we went from processing, which is like, you know, we said 80s is like Coke and uh, 60s is hippies. Then we came into the era of cultural forecasting, which was normcore, K-hole, all of that. And what I'm recently experiencing is almost uh, like an eclipsing of culture via cultural theory, uh, Mm -hmm. where we almost preempt an outcome and therefore it doesn't arrive. Um, I can name, you know, Indy Sleaze, the cobra snake was invited back to one party, but that's it. Um, It's almost like we're stopping a natural flow. It's the same with Web 3.0. It's announced itself as a revolution. And where are we right now? I mean, to your point of the future, I think whether that was Indy Sleaze and trend forecasting or whether that was Web 3, investment over the past year until let's say the summer when the crypto market started to crash, people were investing in competing futures more than they were even investing in particular 
products. So if you had a product that made a certain kind of widget, that didn't matter. It mattered what kind of world you positioned that widget within. And that's what people would invest in. So there was this kind of eclipsing of lived experience. I mean, I think the other issue is that the world is so incredibly siloed right now. There's no shared world that anyone really inhabits. So, Except that we all use the same Web2 media structures to try to communicate. That right, but even even within that, I think that there's different Content networks. Sure. And, yeah. I mean, always with culture forecasting, you can't holistically ever do it. It's always yeah. going to apply to a particular thread. I mean, in, in these leads, you do see a return of a certain irreverence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the face of a cautious mainstream fashion, the embrace of edgelording again, mm-hmm. you know? And that's very much related to the indie sleaze era of early Vice magazine. Like Prey Ob- comes from that. Sort kind of, of obnoxious clothing and ironic yeah. t-shirts and uh, sex, drugs, and electro house. <laughs> but I have a, a real issue with people talking about nostalgia being like back in fashion. And I would frame it differently. Like Coperni just did a fashion show with Bella Hadid where she was in a white dress on stage and the dress was sprayed onto her, uh, which is something that Alexander McQueen did in 2004. It was the exact replicate of that moment. Um, The thing I feel is that we're not nostalgic for an indie sleaze aesthetic. We're not nostalgic for that moment at Alexander McQueen. We're nostalgic for a different backdrop from which creation came. Hmm. And so I think we're nostalgic for a different mode. And it's not connected to an aesthetic. I think that's a really smart distinction. It's not aesthetic, it's structural. We're nostalgic for yeah. a structure that no longer exists. And so we're reproducing the aesthetics that correlated to that structure, but not because we have an emotional relationship to the aesthetic. I, I also think you yeah. can reach back to aesthetics of the past without nostalgia being involved right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at it and analyze it from the internet perspective, which is a perspective of holographic time, where every era is equidistant. Essentially, what you have with, say, 90s fashion is a clear and proven set of aesthetic tropes that you know are effective to make a tribal identity around, you know? I think when we speak of nostalgia, we're always acknowledging linear time. Mm. But a lot of thinking online is actually taking place in holographic time Mm. where Mm -hmm. where there is no nostalgia. So retro, like a retro fashion coming back can absolutely not even be nostalgic at all. It's just choosing an aesthetic pack that works to build a subcultural or aesthetic tribe around. I think to connect what you just said with Kat's point about it being less nostalgic for the aesthetic than for the structure that produced that aesthetic. Were you trying to get crazy with this, eh? Don't you know I'm local? I went into Urban Outfitters this past week and they were playing Cypress Hill and they were selling something called Y2K pants and they were just like reaver pants or whatever. Is this really nostalgia for an aesthetic or is this nostalgia for like an urban structure that allowed Cypress Hill and raver pants to make sense. Like, right? So it's like not not like just a disembodied aesthetic, but maybe one that correlates to a particular structure. 
Right, or you can imagine it as sort of a LARPing model or something, right? Exactly. Say more. Well, you you can play 90s. Like mm-hmm. That is more like a live-action role-playing game or more like going to uh, anime con dressed mm-hmm. as your favorite character. Mm-hmm. I think we've been seeing subculture moving more towards the direction of how it operated in the East for, for a long time yeah. in Japan, right? Oh, yeah. Where it was more of a costume, more of a LARP than it is some authentic idea of your lifestyle right. or identity. It's like identity hopping. Yeah. And a lot of pastiche with these two. Entirely. And I think that's also that's part of the identity all of a sudden. A friend of mine, we listened to Galliano's podcast. He has a very fun podcast, just talking to himself <laughs> about the world. And um, <laughs> my friend was like, they don't make these kind of designers anymore. And I was like, Galliano, if he came up today... He would be the same as all of the designers. We just get what the system gives us. And we will be the creators that the system allows us to be. Mm. Um, and so Galliano, he's a reminder of an era where design was coming from a visceral urge. Yeah, that's super interesting. And to your point of like LARPing in culture, I think there are two theories. One of it is post-core. I was over all this coining terms situation. And what I was seeing is that people are trying to embed everything into their identity on the internet. It's trying to inhabit as many contradictions as you can in your personality and become a total fake. And that's like the realest thing you can be. And then there's a second theory, which is called autopilot fiction, which is similar to that, where once simulation has been revealed as simulation, which we experienced in COVID, we're almost hiding and running back into simulation, knowing that it's lost its value, but we don't know what the next could be in a system that does value the fake. Hmm. I mean, related to Postcore, Carly and I have recently been thinking a lot of what we've just called mind versus matter or outdoorsmen versus indoorsmen or material world versus the abstracted world. And in your postcore section of the issue, you speak about how if you don't make sense, they can't get you. And of course, like as soon as you name something, it's sort of reified into a commodity or something that can be specifically attacked, deconstructed or intellectualized. And basically, when something is named, the countdown to its Yeah, the value of begins. incoherence. Right, and we right. see this from like the turn of the century. There is a kind I'm of I'm not saying it's something new, but I think there is a bit more awareness, even if it's not an intellectual or described in language kind of awareness, that there is this problem with language, the word world of mm-hmm. the online space mm-hmm. that can take magic out of things or allow things to be destroyed really quickly. And there's a sort of instinctual act of resistance to that right now. Also, the pushback against think pieces and the cultural criticism and trend forecasting. I mean, Nemesis's last essay they wrote was also about being post think piece and and Schumann wrote core and right, right it, also as well that. and Dean stopped doom spiraling yes exactly right. the downward spiral came to its bottom yeah I think it's really hard in a world that is built up of ones and zeros to embed the erratic like the internet is inherently rational and flat and there is something that always will escape it 
So that is a question. I mean, the past few years in particular, people who are adjacent to the culture sector have been spending a disproportionate amount of time communicating through screen space, have been living online, which is to say have been living without bodies in a sense. I mean, of course, we still get dressed every day. We still now go to clubs and restaurants or whatever. But in a sense, the primary place of communication is without a body. So I wonder to what degree does the bodiless space of the online sphere now influence fashion? And I wonder if there are any examples that come to your mind about how fashion is downstream from this bodiless space, from this space of word world, from this space of numbers, from this space of abstraction. Um, how does that manifest itself trend or concept wise in the physical fashion world or just socially, like among your friend groups? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, we all had a conversation with Prada about Dinia Rossa. What I see when I speak to fashion brands is that they're currently more and more interested in getting cues on what consumers want from internet subcultures, where before it was street culture, streetwear. So, you know, what we see as memes on Instagram finds its way into clothes. Uh, we've seen this with, you know, what Lotta Volkova did with Miu Miu and her huge success there. I think the mini skirt comes from like a Lolita, little girl, ballerina meme. <laughs> so I think fashion is taking its cues from internet subcultures now. What that means, you know, in terms of like de-physicalization, I don't even want to get into metaverse dressing. I don't think that's ever no, going to yeah. really make it. <laughs> But otherwise, I think uh, we're looking at a contradiction. One is the revival of couture, me going to Claire Sullivan, who, by the way, created the cover look for Paloma specifically oh, for this issue. She was part of Vaquera and now started her own couture studio. So now in old fashioned 1920s manier, I'm going to Claire Sullivan to get my clothes done. Um, <laughs> but then obviously we're looking at still, you know, big luxury fashion and Uniqlo for the masses. It's going to live in a contradiction. What's the economy of that? And then what is the media for that? I have a theory that the Web2 channels are not our commons. They are these interstate highways. And the posts that we see are just billboards and bumper stickers. And they're these super highways with a million off ramps. And you can choose to get off at any point. No one's really hanging out on social media. They're going there to catch a billboard and then take the next exit. And then they spend their time in blogs or, I mean, like the Essence model is pretty successful. The Heisnabaiti model, I guess now Zalando, where you're seeing these travel plazas to extend this analogy is probably very cringe, but like the real media, the real common space is actually not on social media. It's actually in the places that it dumps you off onto. And I've been fascinated to see how a lot of these smaller brands, I mean, I was looking at eco-oriented ones like Base Range, for instance, and how their sites mm. are essentially editorial. I mean, there's so much language on every single one of their products talking about how their product is made and ethical care and the bodies are very editorial, you know, the presentation Material. 100% cotton. Cotton was first domesticated no, no, right, right. in 5000 BC by like, Totally. But then, of course, there, then there are these aggregator sites that aggregate other kinds of brands that are sharing an ethos with it. And you're like, oh, that, and then they do proprietary editorial the way, say, Essence would. And I'm like, there's a whole world of media that's existing now within these smaller parts of fashion. But I don't know if I just, like, have found some funny eddies and this isn't true across the board. In your experience, 
what is the economy for these? I mean, obviously with Claire Sullivan, that is a couture type relationship. She's making these like incredible pieces. But in general, how does the financing work here? And then where is the space of media or sharing or presenting or wearing in your mind? Like, Where does that exist? Mm-hmm. Okay, so much to talk about. So I think what you're <laughs> sensing is in fashion, every brand needed to become a platform right? because of social media. Right. So everyone started to have editorial content and become a world. And that led to weird distortions with people talking about cotton as if they were a science lab or brands like Pangea, which is very successful because they really connected to some sort of material innovation and did that very sincerely. But I think that's all still an identity crisis, which I wouldn't call fashion. That's like something else. Then speaking about where the money comes from and how that's monetizable. Or yeah, just like what's the economy? Like, you know, when we were talking with Dina Yego and Joshua Citarella, Dina made the good point, and Josh too, that whereas in the aughts and early teens, wealthier collectors would buy art and then peers of the artist or younger people would show up at the dinners, but wouldn't really participate in the economy of the artworks. They would on the level of hanging out in the studio and like buying beers for everybody, but not buying the art. Whereas once you have like Cafe Forgot, you know, smaller brands, they're expensive like Vaquera or Echo Slada or whatever. It's possible to buy one Echo Slada piece if you're like 25. You can participate in that economy in some way, right? It's interesting that it becomes actually like in a way a kind of local economy, which is very different than the Balenciaga economy, which is multinational. And so when I say the economy, I don't just mean like, oh, is everybody a trust fund kid? It's how is the economy working? And the economy is a kind of media too, right? Money is media. It's like an interface between ideas and a community. It holds it together. So how do you see that economy working? And then where is the media comments for it? Like Paradigm is one site, but like, where is the media comments for it? Is it actually just physical? Like people, like Dime Square is a form of media. Or, I mean, I guess people who are like, buying Claire Sullivan aren't spending all their time on Essence. But like, where is the media for that? So we're looking at new brands coming up that are obviously not Balenciaga. In order to grow, they have to create space and have followers. So it's a lot about investing in culture before there's any return. Hmm. But also, I think in general, what I'm looking at on my Instagram feed is like still influencers being paid by Chanel to go to Cannes and wear the bag. And it's so boring though, right? And no one thinks it's real and no one is really genuinely buying into it right. anymore. It doesn't look real. Yeah. So I think luxury and fashion both are migrating and they're going into private spaces, private life. We're influenced in real life by what people around us are doing. Obviously, I'm speaking from a quite privileged point of view in the center of fashion. But what I'm experiencing around myself is that people are favoring small family-run businesses that are focused on their craft and what they do or custom pieces. Mm. So the personal connection becomes really important again. And the, the people behind a brand and your rapport with them is a luxurious experience. Mm. That is, Community as media. That is a luxurious point of view, but I hope that it's a precursor of where the general public moves that it becomes more local, more personal again. Um, And big luxury will try to hijack that via, you know, personalize your sneaker or Mm -hmm. 
um, mix your own Le Labo perfume <laughs> that has already been pre-mixed. <laughs> but of course, we can't, you know, you can't mass produce custom. Yeah. Uh, but there will be a marketing scheme around that for sure. In terms of fashion, what the platform is, it's a sad time in terms of where we come together as a community and around what we come together. I think Heisnobiety is weirdly the only viable platform that brings it all together. Uh, everything feels a little unnecessary. Right. It's interesting to hear you say the ultimate luxury is to have your media be people, to buy directly from the small producer. And that is viable also when it comes to independent artists making their own merch and that merch being a kind of media. I mean, I would also say, though, technologically, especially with better big data crunching, Hive.one is this Twitter plugin that measures the connections between people en masse on Twitter oh, and wow. assigns them categories. It's kind of this extension or amplification of social graphs. Mm -hmm. So groups you almost aren't aware you're in. The algorithm, by crunching the connections, can start to tell you what scene you're in, even if you never thought Crazy. you were part of that. So I think there's almost like these meshes of commons that exist online that you're not even aware of because they're interwoven with everything else. I mean, I guess you just don't have a clear shape to them that you can see. Right, in your own head. I know Aaron Z. Lewis has been working on trying to visualize some of that, but it's true. I mean, of course, the algorithm knows what you're a part of because it's feeding you content from whatever that mesh is. But yeah, I mean, I wonder what are some of the organic ways that you can imagine the new advances will drive this sense of community as media? Yeah, I think if we outsource cultural production an AI creates the next campaign for Louis Vuitton, we can't relate to AI the way we can relate to one another. And so I think what will naturally happen is that we come to favor human traits because we feel closer connected to them. And that will possibly change our way of looking at creativity. I mean, I think what human traits are may even become more clear. It's like a human fantasy as long as, you know, the story of Gollum, the idea that AI can match human intelligence or, you know, we, we desire to have a machine mirror us. It's like an incredible narcissism that a machine could be a match. Um, but like, what is it's like an, I forget, what is the, Zeno's paradox? Zeno's paradox. That's when, and if yeah. you divide the distance by half over and over, the arrow never arrives, Never right? arrives, exactly. So it's like a Zeno's paradox where like the closer that AI becomes to us at a certain point, then humans will, I think, I mean, will differentiate themselves in some way. Certain qualities that maybe weren't so important in the past will become important. I mean, I don't know, but I just say this on the basis that it's an ancient human human fantasy, that there will be a machine that will be human. And maybe in some capacities and via some tests, that's going to be true. But then we're going to change the test. Just like IQ is the way you judge intelligence. But we know that there's so many different kinds of intelligence not captured by that, right? And I think one thing that the issue does nicely is that it does show that there's this ineffable part of human creation and fashion is one expression of it that 
exceeds or because it's irrelevant to AI, it will always remain in the realm of the human. Yeah, we're just learning to adapt to this technological revolution of AI Mm -hmm. and what that means when our consciousness is being put to question. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we will come to understand that there are many shapes and forms of consciousness that we're a part of simultaneously. This is another thing that I've been thinking of a lot also after reading the Cormac McCarthy books, which talk a lot about the part of the mind that you can't access, the power of the computation in the background, the thought that comes to you, uh, people getting more in touch with their nonverbal aspect of their but thinking. this is straight up data. I'm sorry. This is exactly what happened with like automatic writing in the 19 right, teens and sure. 20s. This is exactly the same thing. I'm not saying this is yeah. new. No, it's a repeating human theme, which I think is interesting. Right. I, I like that you reinterpreted the central line to Top Gun Maverick, which was <laughs> don't think, just do. And you have in the issue, don't think, just feel and act. Yeah, it's, it's like about knowledge that's not learned. It's like right. knowledge that we possess from before we were born. And that goes back to like being trapped in a system where we can't break free from. And hence, I'm not reading cultural theory. I'm reading A Course in Miracles. There's a weird rise of like Christianity is seems really trending right now. Right, and network spirituality. <laughs> it's a, a neo-anthroposophic moment where we're interested in the subconscious. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that happened where, you what know... What is that mean, neo-anthroposophic? Anthroposophy was a esoteric form of spirituality, um, an idea that there was some kind of natural intelligence that we all had and that Mm. technology at the time was, I mean, to bracket this, it was actually external technology that was making people interested in thinking these ways. But one of the things that they thought was that industrial technology, you know, think about like the turn of the century, right? The golden age where so much money was being aggregated due to new forms of industrialization, right? That that was blocking our innate intelligence. And so we needed to unlock that. And so there was a return to natural forms. There was a belief in crystals and meditation. And if you think about it, 1887 was when they first were able to record sound on a disc, 1892, viruses were discovered. It wasn't even known, but this microscopic particle. 1895, the X-ray was discovered. A a new type of ray, a kind of light that they couldn't see was suddenly discovered. You could see bones for the first time. You could take a picture of bones without the skin. How crazy that you could take a picture of somebody's skeleton, right? Then quantum theory was proposed in 1900. The evidence that Earth has a core was discovered in 1906. The notion of genetic disease. Oh, that's the first core. The first core. That's true. The of the Earth's core. Um, so there was just like, there were all these new kinds of perceptual changes that were happening around that time. So of course there would be a parallel shift in thinking, all right, well, our conscious mind is limited. There's more than what we can see. So we have to push away the known world and unlock some of the things that are happening unconsciously, subconsciously. Um, You know, the rise of Dada and surrealism. I mean, you're also seeing the world change through world wars. The world's going through an immense amount of change. 
similar to now. Now also we're going through an immense amount of change. The climate, you know, the fact that like weather patterns aren't working the way they had in the past. You see governments starting to be overhauled. American democracy doesn't work the way it once had. So I think we're in a parallel time. And this return to an interest in automatic creative production, using machine learning as a kind of medium, a divination system of what the collective unconscious is. I mean, I think that's like a really human reflex to also give credence to these external things, to say, we're going to trust the machine so that the machine can help unlock in us something that we couldn't see before, whether it's these social mesh sets that you were talking about, or if I say like horse and umbrella, what does mid journey give me? And like, let it divine what we're all thinking, get us out of these 20th century legacy structures. So I see it as a very human thing and a thing that we've done before as a kind of escape route, a line of flight out of a structure that no longer is serving us. So this whole time we've been kind of grasping around the unconscious and these ideas, you've just been like, privately thinking like, oh God, Julian's on this neo-anthroposophy <laughs> thing. I always thought you were disinterested in this kind of focus I had over the past couple of weeks, but you had a much clearer map and vision about no, this kind of mode. No, no, that, no. Yeah. I think there is a parallel here and it's one that like a scholar who actually knows this stuff as opposed to just like, you know, opening up a few Wikipedias, I'd love to hear them expound on Can it. Can you say it the word be... one more time so I know how to say it? Anthroposophy? Anthroposophy. Yeah. Anthroposophic. Thank you. (laughs) Just to fill out the definition of anthroposophy here, some clarifications. Anthroposophy was developed by Austrian Rudolf Steiner around the turn of the 20th century and amid a wave of new esoteric thinking. But in counterdistinction to the more woo-woo strains of mysticism, Steiner positioned anthroposophy as a spiritual science. He was at once impressed and disheartened by the technological developments of his time. He was impressed by humankind's capacity for invention and by the discoveries, inventions such as X-ray photography, radio wave transmission, the ability to record sound made possible. But he was disheartened by the extent to which the spiritual dimensions of existence were minimized in turn. Notably, anthroposophy gained increased traction following the First World War. And as the capacity for measurement and data capture increased, Steiner observed a narrowing of human perception, a dulling of humanity's ability to perceive things that could not yet be technologically measured or controlled. He believed this trend would ultimately lead to an increase in human suffering and a distancing from the non-human world. Yet, instead of retreating off-grid, Steiner set out to develop an empirical method that could be applied to the realm of the soul. While written off as pseudoscience by some, anthroposophical practices such as biodynamic farming, Waldorf education, and holistic medicine continue to this day, and indeed continue to offer an alternative to an increasingly abstract, increasingly technologically mediated world. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, like almost like a breaking down of oppositions, like how words are not really functional right now, Mm. because our associations to words stop us from having actual dialogue. We can easily see that in politics right now, where left and right uh, represent so many different associations that don't really capture what they possibly are. This idea of oppositions, we're reckoning that they don't exist in that sense. 
I think you're right. Yeah. I wonder what you were reading around the writing and planning this issue. There was a mention in one of the diagrams of Irving Goffman, who in 1956 wrote a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, studying and talking about how everyone acts in social situations, like in a way, a type of theater. And I think I had seen that Wikipedia page sometime like eight years ago and forgot about it. But I, I kind of am curious about the map of the things you were reading, whatever online spaces, where your head was over the course of planning this issue. Yeah, it was weird. Like I started out really structured, went into, you know, like Lev Manovich AI aesthetics and like Boris Groys and Hito Steyerl. And then I completely like jumped ship and started reading weirder stuff like Vibrant Matter by Jane Bennett, a political ecology of things where she sort of makes the case that like all matter is active and is an actant. Even, you know, the water I'm drinking is doing something to me and it has an active component. Then I got really interested in how in William Hogarth's analysis of beauty and it came from a conversation I had with the architect Claudio Silvestrin who applies sacred geometry and ancient knowledge of beauty in his work. And in my conversation with him, he stated something saying uh, that beauty opposes the rule of the machine. And I was interested to understand what what he meant by that. And um, so I went more esoteric than I had expected. I also recommend for everyone to look at the book, The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed, which is the first AI written book. Uh, And I think it came out in like 1984. And uh, otherwise, I tried to keep my palette clean. (laughs) And like, I, I really believe our job is to be aware of the world around us and to have the right intention. So I believe in like cleansing and not having too much of an intake is the way to go. <laughs> Marie condoing your content diet. Yeah. I will Yeah, I, I really have a resistance to like reading and watching too much stuff right now because I think it's about tuning inward. I also think that a lot of the think pieces are operating on a kind of analog AI model where they're all kind of saying the same thing. Like it's been a while since I've come across a piece of cultural criticism that I felt really shifted my understanding of how things work. I feel like they're downstream from the systemic mechanisms. And I mean, this is maybe highly personal, but it's been a lot more rewarding learning about like global economics or some local political issue by reading very dry analysis of it than the spin. I feel like the cultural criticism as you diagnose in this issue, it feels like a dead space. And who is the audience for that? It feels really insular. It doesn't feel like it's even trying to speak to anyone beyond the people that are already sitting at the table. Yeah, it's like institutional critique reinforces institution. Yeah, exactly. So maybe as a closing question, with this idea of needing a better sense of where you stand in a physical world, as opposed to losing yourself in the great sea of content, if there was one or two things you would hope the reader takes away from this issue, what would it be? Yeah, um, I think for the general public, I hope that people understand that their purchases are their votes and that everything they engage and consume is the world they are building. This is how our system currently works. I think your purchase is way more significant than your political vote. And then number two is hopefully that there is a return to 
the physical and the body and being human, being more human with each other. Sounds good. Like half a year ago, I would have never believed I'd say those things. I sound like an esoteric uh, person. <laughs> well, we were just spending time with a couple that has a new baby. And let me tell you, the most interesting form of media is your newborn child's face. And if you want to return to the human, I recommend procreating for better or Yeah, worse. exactly. Have more babies and <laughs> make that. Exactly. All right. In the issue, you printed the press release from the 2016 Berlin Biennale that's curated by Dis. And I mean, that was an absolutely incredible summer. And also reading it right now, it almost feels like what they were getting at got diverted or something, got sort of pushed away by this other thing for a few years. And it really does ring true now. I guess I... It always rang true. It got pushed right. away by a dying machine that saw it as an incredible threat. So had to like say right. that it was fascist adjacent, which is a crazy yeah. psychedelic thought. Right. It rings true. When I reread it, I was like, damn, I could just really publish this and be done. Um, <laughs> it was an incredible time. And yeah. When the Berlin Biennale came out, it was 2016. They started in 2014 working on it. But already in 2014, a lot of the principles that they were putting forth, they had already stated in 2012, 11, 10. I mean, DIS understood this as soon as digital networks started to direct real life, which was 2010, 11, 12, this right. period. They anticipated this. And now it can be more widely recognized as, yes, that was a prescient and accurate articulation of what was happening. I thought it was a great inclusion, but I also wonder what made you think about it again and or has it always been something you've kind of thought about and been floating around and this was just right for here? Uh, I had the, I was lucky to be there at that point in time and I was way younger and didn't even understand what it meant to culture that moment. Um, and then I had dinner with Dave and Solomon from DIS and I, I just brought up how I felt like these questions have still not been answered. And then when I was writing the issue, it just occurred to me that they posed these questions way earlier already. So we're just having getting a second shot in a way to like reassess. <laughs> Well, I think they're having like a micro retrospective at the Schinkel Pavilion this coming spring. So oh, those amazing. passing through Berlin, stay tuned. Also, what is it called? Everything But the World or the, the film that we saw in Geneva? I think that's the right. title. Um, that is, will also be screened at Schinkel. So Which definitely catch that while yeah. you can. Um, okay. Well, Kat, thank you for your time and sharing these behind the scenes insights on what propelled you to make this issue. Tell us when people can view it, how they can access it. And yeah. yeah, on January 22nd, you can access Paradigm Trilogy via ParadigmTrilogy.com on your phone, or you can download the PDF and the audio file on your desktop. Super. And Paradigm Trilogy 1, is there any way to view that? Or if you missed your window, you missed your window. Gone. Damn. Got to be quick. So don't miss it. Download it. Listen to it. Read it. And if people want to give feedback, is there any other spaces where they can send their thoughts? We don't accept any feedback, no. <laughs> okay. One-way system. Love it. There are a couple jobs you can apply for, though. There's AI wrangling engineer, second brain, AI interpretation manager. No feedback, but uh, some job descriptions in the issue you'll apply see now at all at paradigmtrilogy.com. Yeah, so check out the issue if you're uh, a newly unemployed tech worker. And, oh yeah, there's tens of thousands. <laughs> and uh, want a hot job with Paradigm Trilogy. Well, Thanks thank you, so Kat, much. and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Ciao.
Thank you for listening to this New Models special report. And thank you, Kat, for coming on the show. You can find the new issue of Paradigm Trilogy at ParadigmTrilogy.com, including Carly and me moonlighting as models in a shoot by Tobias Spiktik. Tobias is the artist who we collaborated with on a limited run of t-shirts featuring a seven-color screen print of his painting, Some Beautiful Mess. We still have some left, and they're available at shop.newmodels.com. The idea for the collaboration was put in motion around the time of this shoot last May, with the painting and its title pointing towards a growing desire to embrace the immeasurable, the chaotic, and the human. Some six months later, the concept rings all the more real in the wake of financial and infrastructural contraction across the tech, finance, and media sectors. From FTX to Gemini, Twitter to Goldman Sachs, and the selling off of Vice and Artforum. The tens have finally come to a close. And among the mess, we're actually looking very forward to making sense of what's to come, in real time, with all of you. To that end, New Models will be teaming up with Berlin's Trust Limited for a monthly Kino night. It's not set in stone yet, but it's looking like it'll kick off with an irreverent obituary of sorts to the spirit of the Tens on February 8th, right after Transmediala. More details forthcoming. That's all for now. Thank you for tuning in and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.